0: Well, I owe it to my wife if I know anything about whale sharks, because I hadn't really paid much attention to them for most of my life. And she was a huge fan of whale sharks. I've actually seen, now seen a whale shark or seen whale sharks off the coast of Mexico. They are indescribably awesome, massive, the size of a bus when you see them up close. It's hard to imagine how evolution created something so completely gargantuan and so different from us. But not only are they the world's largest fish, we knew that. It turns out they are also the planet's largest omnivores. And that is a surprise, even to those who study the mass of creatures closely. And it calls into question... most of what we thought we knew about, how they sustain themselves, these giant 39, 40-foot-long creatures. The discovery was made by scientists studying whale sharks off Western Australia, including Dr. Mark Meakin, who's the principal research scientist at the Australian Institute of Marine Science, and he joins us now. Thanks so much for your time tonight.
1: Hey, g'day, Ben. How are you, man?
0: Very well. I, I mean, what this is? I, I read through your article as well as it was covered in the Guardian as well. Uh, the, what a fascinating find! I mean, you've studied these animals for quite a while. These you've studied whale sharks for quite a while. What did you set out to find about their eating habits? Was there anything about them that you thought you didn't know? Well, you know, it's a it's a funny
1: funny example of how sometimes your eyes betray you. You know. We, we see these animals coming to Ningaloo Reef, which is in Western Australia, up in the tropics. And we uh, and turn up every year from about sort of March through to August, and that coincides with this big bloom blooming plankton. And a lot of it there, what we see them there eating are these tiny shrimp, things called krill. And you can see them, you know, eating this stuff all the time. And you thought, well, there's the answer. That's why they're coming to Ningaloo, and that's all there is to it. But... There's been some really fantastic new techniques developed, and you can analyze the microchemistry of these animals just by taking a skin sample. And it turned out the story was way, way more complex than that.
0: For people who aren't familiar, entirely familiar with the whale shark, they're called gentle giants for a reason, I gather. I mean, they are sharks, Um, but but they they. I mean, I've seen them. They open their mouths to this incredible, and they seem to consume just you know, they're filter feeders, right? to, uh, yep. to explain yep. what does so, that mean? So, so basically, um, if you're going to be big
1: and, and you're right, well, sharks are really big, you know, these things are huge. If you're going to be big, you have to eat food. It has to be a lot of food around you. Right. And if you're in the ocean, well, then you focus on plankton and plankton's pretty tiny. Um, it's, but it's everywhere. Right. And so if you have a gill system, a mouth that can just filter this stuff out as you swim along. There you go. You're like a giant plankton net, really. That's that's essentially how they make their living.
0: Because they don't have sharp teeth. I mean, we call them sharks, but they don't. They don't look anything like a shark that you would. That you. They don't look anything like jaws. In other words,
1: no, they don't. I mean, you know, uh, they're the most beautiful animals. But put yourself out the front of Ningaloo Reef, Ben. Imagine you're floating on a nice tropical ocean. The sun on your back. You're snorkeling on there. You look down through the water. It's deep blue. look out horizontally and you see this enormous shape coming towards you with this giant open mouth. And as it comes towards you, the silhouette resolves itself into this giant shark that's covered in stripes and spots. The sunlight's refracting off its back. It's just an incredible experience. It's like swimming with something that's just arrived at a prehistory into your lap. It's really a, a fabulous experience. I can see why your wife's so keen about the men. And even after working on them for 20 years, so am I. And that's why this, the, what we found when we looked at, their, looked at their tissue was such a surprise. We thought we really knew something about these sharks, and it turns
0: out that there's a lot more to it. Yeah, because even as as a neophyte, I mean, I, I remember sw- swimming with them, and what was always what I was so amazed by was how quiet they were, <laughs> how quiet <laughs> these, you know, they, there's this massive thing, and all of a sudden you look beside you, and they're just kind of floating by. You know, it was it was, well,
1: um, yeah, it's it's a, it is rated as one of the top ten wildlife experiences in the world, and, and for very good reason. You know, it is it is like swimming prehistory. You've got to figure figure these things, though. They're swimming along with their mouths open, and that costs a lot of energy. If if you talk to any fisherman, pulling a net through the water, it's an energetically expensive thing to do. So these guys, what they're trying to do is they're trying to focus on areas where the, the little shrimp-like animals are plankton, are all aggregated. Things like windrows or fronts between water masses. And that aggregates their prey for them so that they can feed more efficiently. So they get basically more bang for their buck when they're pushing that net through the water. But the problem so we, for the sharks is, sorry, the problem for the sharks is that those processes, those physical processes that aggregate their prey, the shrimps and stuff, also aggregate lots of marine debris. In this case, it turns out to be seaweed. And what we found was that these animals are actually uh, consuming an awful lot of
0: seaweed too and, and that was something that i mean I, I remember even being told when we were uh went to see them that you know, they came to this area because of the krill this is why they're here this is what they mm-hmm. eat this is how they sustain themselves and you've basically discovered that that's not really that's not really the case at all they actually sustain themselves also with something entirely different which is which is fascinating <laughs>
1: Well, that, that's the thing. Okay, you know, you've got this energy expensive sort of mode of feeding, filtering things out. And what do you do if you get, if you swallow some floating seaweed? Well, you've got a couple of choices, right? Sharks can vomit up their stomachs. So they could just get rid of the whole thing, but that would be an energetically really wasteful thing to do. The alternative is that you actually hold it in your gut. Um, but the problem there becomes, well, you're actually taking up space in their gut that could be used for food. So over evolutionary time, what we think has happened, these sharks have actually worked out a way to digest the, the, the plant material that's coming into them. And so turns out that when you look at their, the microchemistry in, in their skin, these tiny skin samples we take from them, it, it tells us that these things are really eating quite a lot of the, the floating algae.
0: Did it? Did it answer any questions that you had about how such a large animal could sustain itself continuously? Yeah. Did it? Did it solve any? Once you found that out, did, was there an aha moment? Aha! I understand now something about them that now makes more sense.
1: Well, it was a little bit of shock, Ben. <laughs> I mean, no you know, we, we were, you know, because it's it's kind of like denying what you see. Because when you look at the animals, we see them on the surface, we see them. Running along with their mouths open at the surface, filter feeding, and and you see them targeting these big swarms of krill and things like that. So you know it 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 really took us aback that maybe it's you know that they're actually getting a lot of other things that out of that out of that process, not just the krill. So that took us aback, but in some ways it it, it does actually stand to reason, because if you look on land, all the biggest animals ever since the age of the dinosaur. Have all been herbivores, and they're herbivores because they're all, you know the, the planet's green. There's lots of plants around, and if you're big, you want to feed on something a food source that's very abundant. So, basically, all these big things tend to feed on on uh, on plants on land on land. But this is the first instance we have found that that the same thing may be true in the oceans as well.
0: Because in this case, I mean, you actually described it as sort of. Having to, you know, changing everything we knew about this particular animal—that's well researched. I mean, whale sharks are not unknown uh, to us, but there's a lot we don't know. But you described it as sort of changing everything we knew about them, which, in scientific terms, is a big statement.
1: It is. Um, Well, it's certainly changing. It's changing the evidence before our eyes. That's that's the real thing. And and I think it turns out that. It's a lot more complex than than just the surface, uh, the surface appearance, and so much of science really turns out to be like that. Ben. you know, once you once you scratch the surface, there's a whole lot more there. And when we look back in history, um, you know, the biggest herbivore uh, on land at the moment, the, or sorry, the biggest omnivore on land at the moment is a Kodiak bear, and that thing's about 680 kilos. Um, and and if we look. Back through the whole sweep of time, back to the dinosaurs. Then there's a thing called uh, Dinochirus, which is which is a, a, a herbivorous dinosaur that got to about seven uh, seven tons. A whale shark, thirty tons, probably more. Um, we're really talking the largest omnivore. That that you know, I, I'm, I I'm a bit reluctant to say that the largest omnivore that's ever been because the fossil record is very incomplete and tomorrow someone will probably turn up a large you know, omnivorous dinosaur that'll make a lot of me. But um, as far as we know, this is one of the largest omnivores that has actually ever existed on the planet.
0: Incredible thought. It's a remarkable finding. I'm speaking with Dr. Mark Meakin. He's the principal research scientist at the Australian Institute of Marine Science. We're talking about a recent discovery uh, about what whale sharks eat. I know that uh, they are the... The ocean's biggest fish. Um, now we also know they are the world's largest omnivores. We found that they not only eat krill, uh, sort of a small shrimp like thing that we see them absorb as filter feeders. They almost act, their mouths almost act as huge nets as they swim through the ocean, but they also ingest a lot of algae. And it turns out they consume that too. So it's kind of changed everything, as, as uh, Dr. Meekin was explaining, kind of changed everything we thought we knew about how they sustain themselves. After this, we'll talk about what that means, how it how it may help us better protect them in the future if we know exactly what it is that they're consuming. That's coming up. Our guest this half hour is Dr. Mark Meekin. He's the principal research scientist at the Australian Institute of Marine Science. We're talking about whale sharks and a remarkable discovery uh, that Dr. Meekin and his team have just announced and made about uh, dietary habits of the world's biggest fish. It turns out they're omnivores. They eat both krill. We knew they ate uh, fish or krill? Uh, now we know they eat plants too. What's fascinating about this? I was when I was thinking about it was, just, what do you do with this information? Because obviously, you know, there's changing climate, there's changing oceans. Uh, this is a, a, a fish that moves around a lot. I guess it helps us understand a little bit, but how to better protect them, I would imagine. But I don't know that to be true. <laughs>
1: um, well, actually, Ben, it is true. Um, and and here's how. So now we know that whale sharks, uh, you know, they're focusing on these, these fronts and windrows, slip lines um, that contain, you know, both the, the krill and this algae, and they're swimming along them and, and, and essentially fairly indiscriminately eating everything that's there. That, that point's a very important warning for us because marine, unlike, you know, unlike 100 years ago, 150 years ago, Uh, Marine debris now includes an awful lot of plastic. And particularly for these animals that are swimming through tropical and and semi-tropical oceans where plastic debris uh, is a really major problem, You you can just think what pulling effectively, pushing a big plankton net through that little lot is going to get you. And very swiftly, it's going to get you a stomach full of plastic. And that's that's a real problem for for whale sharks. We think these animals swimming along indiscriminately, you know, chowing things down. Um, that's that's going to be a real worry for them.
0: So in this case, I mean, we know obviously plastic pollution is an issue too. But if, if we know what their eating habits are, is there a way that we can at least? I mean, obviously, solving plastic pollution uh, in the oceans is a is a huge issue these days that's talked about a lot. But is there anything else we've learned just about? Their own uh, their, their own migration patterns, for instance, and what they're consuming that will help us better protect the species in in particular.
1: Oh look, uh, we've been doing an awful lot of tagging work um, with whale sharks over over the last twenty years, and so we know where our little population uh, it's about probably you know two or three thousand animals um actually goes it, they head up out you know north from australia out up into indonesia and and through the coral triangle and back down to ningaloo you know and about a yearly migration or every couple of years so so we do know you know where they're going and that's that's essential information um because if if you want to make you know want to secure the future of wild sharks in a conservation sense you know to you have to know what's happening in the area that these animals actually inhabit. And in places like Indonesia, where in some places it's still legal to catch whale sharks, um, uh, you know, they're, they're a food source in some places, we have to know who to talk to and how to change that situation. But um, e- even the issue with plastic and, and realising that they're vulnerable to plastic is important to us too, Ben. And, and for the simple reason that in many of these places, um, people don't connect in um, a lot of developing countries, people don't connect their throwing of plastic rubbish into rivers with, with the, uh, you know, with the ultimate effect that it ends up in the oceans. Yet at the same time, um, places like the Philippines and Indonesia, well, sharks are very emblematic. They're, they're an iconic species there too. And if you can actually connect people's local actions to the ultimate outcome that you might be affecting some of these iconic species that they love too, then you're actually having, you've, you've got a mechanism where you can affect people's behavior. And, and that is, so that's, a you know, it's actually a critical thing. It's kind of a little bit of left field, but, but it's a critical thing to be able to connect people's behavior to real conservation outcomes.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and certainly being able to point to a uh, to to a creature that is that is well, I know obviously in the Philippines, uh, whale well, sharks are are hugely loved, and, and therefore tying those two things together would probably be an effective approach to that. What do you do with this? With this, where do you go from here now? What do you do with this information now that you have found <laughs> it out? What now that you found it out? Oh, this is just one part of um, this is just one part of a,
1: a program that we've been going for twenty years now. We've been looking at the growth patterns of whale sharks. We've shown that males grow quicker than females but get to smaller sizes. It's the females that are those really big 10 to 12 to 14-metre animals that you see out there. Um, we've been looking at um, the the internal, um, internal organs of whale sharks in a program where basically now we can swim underneath them with an underwater ultrasound and actually look to see at the, the state of the internal organs, So we can actually try and do a health assessment on whale sharks as they swim by us, which is a pretty incredible thought. Um, we've, been, we've been looking at uh, whether the individuals at Ningaloo are, are local individuals, whether they hang around, how many years they're sighted. And as I said before, we've got a long-term tagging program. It looks at where these animals go and that has direct conservation outcomes for the, uh, for the species.
0: Well, Dr. Mark Beacon, thank you so much for your time tonight. Um, Again, whale sharks is a very popular conversation in my home, so you've added much to it tonight. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, look, great to talk to you, Ben, and I couldn't recommend to your listeners more that if you ever get the chance, go swimming with a whale shark. It's just a fabulous experience.
0: Absolutely. I agree. Thank you so much for your time tonight.
1: Cheers, Ben.